Hello, and welcome to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan. My co-hosts are Anthony. Howdy. And Rob. Hey, what's going on? We are going to be talking about the big sellout. There's been a massive rash of artists, and I found out today, producers, who are selling off various rights, royalties, all kinds of things. But before we get into that, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announced this year's uh, list of inductees. So what did you guys think of this year's list? So before we even get into that, they need ah. to rename this whole damn thing because it has connotations, rock and roll. And when you look at the list and you see who's on it and you look at prior inductees and you think Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I can't believe that Run DMC are in that before Judas Priest. So... I've seen a lot of reactions saying, I'm going to be so mad if Eminem gets in ahead of Judas Priest because it's just not the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, maybe just rename it the Music Hall of Fame because that's what it is. So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. No, no, no. I'm I feeling think that, strongly about it. That's one of the things I think we should probably talk about too, is I think the yeah. other thing too is that rock and roll as a musical form is co-opted of American black music. So, yes. you know, so I think that there is a certain argument for one, you could just say for that argument alone, Right. Two, it's scattershot. Right. I mean, it's just kind of I know Dolly Parton's like been thinking about, you know, being nominated this year, like she talked about. And she's like, well, I'm not really rock and roll, but OK. I mean, yeah, yeah it's time, time to just rename it. Yeah. But can they? I mean, can they at this point rename it? You could rebrand Coke. And, you could rebrand. I mean, but they never changed the name Coke. No, but they could still say, you know, the Music Hall of Fame. You know, at one point they were going to move this thing to New York and they kept it in Cleveland. So they can do whatever the hell they want. <laughs> and all I'm going to say is I work for a fairly large bank. And two years ago, I worked for a completely different large bank. And I've never actually changed jobs. Rebranding <laughs> happens. Right. Oh, I know. I'm, yeah. I know. I'm, I'm aware. But I don't know. It just seems like... It just seems like the legacy is is too entrenched. It's too established. It is too established, but in an age of when everything else is getting moved around and rechanging things, I think you could argue that, look, the expanse of music we cover does not just rock and roll anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. Let's just, I mean, you could argue that, you know. Pretty. Well, okay, that's true. Um, or but, maybe you know, the you rock and roll and more Hall of Fame. Yeah. Well, oh, that's yeah. not bad. That's not bad. Yeah. Um, the term rock and roll, though, really kind of originates in the, well, as far as it pertains to music, uh, originates in the 50s. And it was, the term was used to describe in whatever the big um, music store was in Chicago, I think it was, uh, the white kids coming in to listen to the black artists' music in the store and the way that they danced and gyrated in the in the aisles as they're listening to this music that they can't get anywhere else. Uh, the store owner described as them rocking and rolling. Yeah. And the, so the, the old rock and roll reviews were the soul artists doing, you know, they would do these like all night uh, sort of review type of concerts where each act would do two or three songs, whatever their singles are. Cause that's basically the market at that time was singles instead of albums. And um, you know, and it just evolved from there. So I'm not necessarily opposed to, you know, and the very first uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, induction class included Chuck Berry and uh, Fats Domino. And I think it was the second year that Motown artists were getting in. So I, I don't have a problem necessarily with 
rap and soul artists and things like that being on the lists. I don't know. So with that out of the way, <laughs> what did you think of the actual nominees? <laughs> it It's interesting because I, I know Rage Against the Machine have been nominated before, but for me, seeing yeah. Eminem nominated, I, I was, you know, I remember Eminem when he first showed up on the scene. Yeah. And I think this is, you know, one of the first years where I'm seeing bands where I'm actively old enough to remember their debuts. Right. And for me, that's a little weird. Right, right. I mean, I, again, I know I'm the youngest one on the show, so this is something you guys have probably been dealing with for a while. But, you know, with the, what is it, 25-year rule? 25, yep. Yeah, I mean, 25 years ago, I was nine. <laughs> right. So... It blows you know, me away that Eminem has actually been around for 25 years. Yeah, so they're actually using his first mixtape, not his first album, as oh. the criteria for him. So oh. I think he's getting in about two years early because of that. On the oh, album. that's interesting. Yeah. That's, that's, that seems weird. They've done that before with artists. Yeah, they consider their first release. Well, okay. But it's, okay. it's kind of cheating. The thing that I'm finding interesting is that um, the day that the list came out, which was what was it, Tuesday, Monday or Tuesday. Um, and then for the most of this past week, Pat Benatar, it was immediately on the fan vote, was immediately the, the top pick and by quite a wide margin. Uh, and then just a couple of days ago, Eminem just like shot past her. And he is now dominating with like an extraordinary margin over everybody else. And Duran Duran, which was in second place is now third and they are gaining to the point where they're going to overtake Pat within a couple of days. So she'll now be in third place. Well, the fan, vote doesn't, the fan oh, vote doesn't really mean, mean anything. It, so. it doesn't. According to Eddie Trunk, the only time the fan vote actually comes into play is so the voting committee gets to vote on five. They get to vote five artists in for potentially to fill six slots. And the only time the fan vote really comes into play is if there is a tie and there's not a clear cut of six, like a seventh one could get in so they can use the fan vote as a deciding factor yeah. between two things that are tied. That's that's about the only thing that it matters. I've never really tracked it. Does the prior nominations, is that an indicator of whether or not a band will get in? So if, you know, looking right. at this, you know, you've got Kate Bush, you've got Judas Priest, you've got Rage Against the Machine. They've all been nominated before. Right. You know, is, I, is, is there an opportunity here where the judges might say, well, you know, this isn't the first time, maybe it's their turn? That hasn't happened historically. Um, okay. It can, but it can, but it hasn't. There's been a it's lot not of times like a rule. where, you know, some people were nominated like 2012, 2015, 2016. There's not, yeah, I mean, Part of my, my issue with this is that, one, there's not really sort of any sort of, I, I think, careful thought about people going in. Um, it's like, oh, you're 25, you're in. You know, um, at some point you'll get a nomination, right? Because let's not forget, Flock of Seagulls did get three Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ballot votes. So um, the, the big thing about this year's nominees is at the beginning of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it was very much a tool for educating people about the history of rock yeah. and pop. So you have, that's gone. Nobody from the fifties and sixties is getting in. It's like, they don't exist anymore. Right. I mean, lots of people um, are talking about like, you know, the monkeys are in, which I can understand the arguments of, of why they're not, for example. Right. 
-hmm. but like Merle Haggard's not in. I mean, there's a lot of interesting people that aren't in the Mm -hmm. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. Um, Benny King's not, you know, uh, the spinners aren't, right? Um, There's a lot of people that aren't in it that are of that generation, you know, the 50s and the 60s that I think gets overlooked. And I'm not sure how you bring them back and get them, you know, but the point is it's kind of turned into a, uh, a contest now, you know, yes, it's all names that we look at and go, Oh, wow. I feel old. And I remember that, that artist, but now it's also difficult. I mean, MC five has been on the ballot for like 9,000 years and can't get in. <laughs> and every band that sounds like MC five has gotten in. Right. Yeah, what just New York dolls get in this year and MC five still don't. Right. That's what and I'm thinking. Like, and <laughs> like, I mean, priest, I, I, I don't understand. And I am not by any means as well chopped on uh, metal as Anthony's, but even I can tell the Judas Priest should be in the friggin' rock and roll. I, I have a, I have a good feeling about priests this year. They don't really have any competition on this list. Like there's nobody else really that kind of fills that same slot. You know what I mean? Whereas, um, you know, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen with Duran Duran and Eurythmics because they're kind of like peers, you know, they're kind of like right yeah. in the same categorical lane so, and so the potential there is for split votes and neither one of them get in but i don't think that's going to happen so they, there was a pretty big discussion on this on a couple of podcasts and on npr and they were talking and i remember writing this down but like there's a lot of people that are upset about king crimson not getting it right for example and they yeah. mentioned that they're like the longest duration of people not getting in um and certainly you know the thing is that like there is a small cottage industry now of bitching about people not getting into hall of fames of any kind right, right. and we will always love the conversation of like who should have could have and would have gotten in right mm-hmm. um but there's a lot of people and i know they can only emit a certain number every year but there's a lot of people when i looked at this list there's a lot of people who is, are so past due that it's just okay Extend the number of people you put in. Why are you putting a cap on it? There are, you know, you're getting to a point where there's more artists that don't deserve to get in that are eligible that are coming up than do. So, like, put these people in that deserve it and stop saying, like, oh, Pat Benatar is not going in this year because the Go Go's are eligible. You know, this is their first year. Stop thinking that way. Think about who deserves to be in it based right. on merit and catalog and put it in. And well, and they do, they do some of that because, you know, however many people get into the six slots that the voting committee votes on, there's all the other extra categories that the hall itself can put yeah. things into. So when you're talking about 50s and 60s acts, like the spinners or whatever, they could go into the Lifetime Achievement Award or the, yeah. you know, the, the, like, uh, like, in, last year. like the industry influencer kind of award, all those special categories that the hall reserves for its own use, basically. Yeah, like they did that with Kraftwerk last year. Yeah, right? yeah. So, exactly. I mean, but the point being is they could still get in. Sure. And they're still not making, no matter how they get in, they're somehow not getting in. So, it's very weird. Right. So, okay, from the list, who do you think are the, the shoe-ins? Like, we, you can talk about who you hope gets in, but who, who do you think is just, like, gonna it's going to happen? I think Lionel Richie. I 100% agree with that. And I, I think, think Dion Warwick as well. Really? Yeah. I'm not sure about no, that one. I'm, not I'm sure, sure Lionel Richie is going to get in, but I don't know about Miss Dion. Even uh, though the thing is, she her profile has really risen this past year and a half. But most of that is because of Twitter. You know, it's not like she's released new albums or anything like that. 
she's just more in the consciousness than she was before. I I hate to be so cynical about this, but she fills a demographic that no one else does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. With she's that. an African American woman, and yeah, candidly, I think that's going to be something that they will see. You know, they will jump on. Yeah. There and that's been... not to say that's not to say she doesn't deserve to be there because I think sure. she does, but I think that's going to that's what will make her a shoe in rather than, you know. Yeah, well, there has certainly in the past few years been a push to get more women in. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I can I can see that weighing in her in her favor. I'm sure that Lionel Richie is is a, is a definite. I think Pat Benatar is. Um, I, I kind of feel like Eminem is. Um. I don't know about who else. Like, I, I don't think Kate's going to get in. It's her third nomin. It's her third time making the shortlist, and I think I agree with you. Yeah, I, I think she's almost too kind of niche. Right, it's only weird people like us who really, really love her. Well, and, and it could be one of those special categories, like craftwork. Last year, I mean, talk about niche and talk about weird. That's craft yeah. work, like to a T. So, you know, I don't know. Kate could. And if you've got people like Maxwell, who are huge Kate fans and lobby for her, you know, it could happen. Who knows? I have a feeling about the New York Dolls. I kind of do, too. I think they're going to get in. I, I kind of feel that way, too. I feel like Dolly has a chance. Okay, so I, I said that I'm not opposed to the rap and the soul artists. I, I, I have a weird feeling about country. Just because <laughs> it, it really does seem like an unrelated genre to me. Now, there are country artists that I think do fit the bill, like the Johnny Cashes and the Merle Haggards, the ones who are, you know, the real sort of outlaw country who have that rock and roll attitude. But I don't know about Miss Dolly. I think that what weighs in Miss Dolly's favor is that she's got new album out she's put out a christmas album last year her profile is so high from her charitable work uh with the the fires across tennessee a year and a half ago or so and then with her contributions to the covid vaccines i think that people are going to vote for her just because they love dolly yeah i agree i only want the new york dolls in there if they agree to induct all 25 members including the ones who did like three concerts Right. <laughs> As you can guess, Alan, this is my covert way of trying to get Blackie Lawless into the exactly. of fame. <laughs> what a lovely thematic tie to last week's show. <laughs> yep. Rob, you got any predictions? So I think in the same way that you would put Dionne Warwick in, you put Dolly in because both of them uh, careers in many ways parallel each other and their influence on other artists is just huge. Uh, and they both did have cross. I mean, Dion Warwick did cross over onto rock charts and and things, and so did Dolly. To yeah, a that's extent. true. That's so true. there is a tenuous sort of thing. So I think that you know, both of them very conceivably could get in. As much as I would love to see Tribe Called Quest get in, I just don't think it's their year. Um, I agree. I think Lionel Richie's in because of his work with the Commodores, and as a solo artist, I think if you have that double that yeah, sort of double stack, you're in. Right, I hundred percent agree um, with that. I absolutely uh, think the New York Dolls and MC Five should be in. Um, I mean, literally. I mean, there wouldn't be a Ramones without an MC Five. You know, right. there's there's like five thousand bands I could name that owe some debt of gratitude to MC Five. Um, 
I still think Priest should get in. I think yeah. Fela Cootie should get in, but he's there's no way that's happening yet. He's um, going to be if he does. It's going to be one of those specialty categories. Yeah, um, and that's that's and they may do that actually. You know, um, and because literally, I mean, just his profound effect on music, you know, is, is well worth it. I just don't think the Eurythmics are getting in. Eminem, no. I think, is a slam dunk just because the momentum, like the groundswell around Eminem is like yeah. nuts. I know, um, you know, there's been a huge groundswell around, you know, fan bases are rallying around the ones you mentioned. But I think Duran Duran and Eminem have had like the hugest push in the last week. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Pat was really hot out of the box. Um, and interestingly enough, I wouldn't necessarily count out Kate Bush yet. Because I know that there are members of, you know, the British press, the British that get to vote for this, and the amount of, um, I mean, we're we're blinded to it a little bit because we're over over here, but the amount of groundswell around Kate Bush in the last three or four years, just as a career, not just for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but just like the demand for her to tour and the, um, you know, people like. Billie Eilish, like mentioning, hey, you should listen to Kate Bush. I mean, uh, it may not be this year, but it's close. Now, I could also see Kate getting in on a special category, but yeah. I, you know, I think I think your definite slam dunks are probably um, at least Duran Duran and Lionel Richie, and um, I would love to say I would love to see Pat Benatar um, get in. I think they'll make Carly Simon wait. I just, you know, they can't put in everybody, um, yeah. you know, but like. But the problem is if you put Carly Simon in, because they'll say, oh, she was such a great songwriter. Then you have to put Glenn Campbell in, um, who wrote just more hits than she wrote for other people, right? Yeah. Um, so you, that starts getting weird. So as much as I love Devo, I'm not sure they're getting in. I think it's too soon for Beck. Um, yeah, I agree. Even though, even though his career's got a lot of legs, I'm just like, it's too soon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and, and I, the same thing about rage too. So I just don't. I mean, as much as I yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree. I just think you know. I think I think though that the time. Well, the time was last year for Pat Benatar, but um, I real I'm really out of all these people, the one I'm really pulling for is Pat Benatar, just because. Yep. I don't think. I mean, I know for you, it's more of a lifetime fan thing, and I have been a fan of hers, but I just don't think that her contemporaries and people her and the people that did music when she was around are getting represented in in the hall yeah and i think that's going to open a ton of doors so yeah, it's possible. Um, yeah. you know but yeah kate bush has got to get in at some point you know yeah. um she's not that obscure people love her right and the one i'm really really rooting for from a personal perspective this year i know you said not who you want but who you think will get in alan but I really want Priest in there. I do too. And I, yeah. I'm telling you, I feel strongly about their possibilities this year. I mean, I, I really I do. Yeah. So it may happen. Okay. So uh, we will keep our eye on whatever happens with the Rock Hall this year. And we will talk about them in depth again when the induction ceremony happens. But now I'm turning it over to Rob for our main topic tonight. So the main topic, and I've kind of been bouncing this around last couple of weeks, you know, artists like it's kind of like the new thing now. Um, artists are selling off their catalogs. They're publishing different aspects of their catalogs. It's happened here and there throughout the years, but there's, it's been like a bull rush, right? Bowie, Dylan, Springsteen, David Crosby, Stevie Nicks is kind of, I think, already did it. Um, well, she was just this past year, too. Yeah, but yeah. Um, 
like the, mainly the last year and a year and a half, this has become a thing where artists are selling their catalogs. There has been a mad rush of this stuff in the past and year. It's, it, it's more, there's more to it than a money girl. A lot of people are like, oh, they just need money, but there is a lot more to it. And I just think it's an interesting story to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously COVID plays a, plays a factor and they can't tour. Obviously some of it is uh, streaming is so huge right now that, you know, it's a seller's market. So you can sell your catalog and probably get more money now than you will, because you will get way more in royalties. I think 10 to, I think the market watch on NPR said it was like 10 to 18 times more money than they get from the royalties uh, as of like the end of last year. Um, And also, you know, if you're if Alan, you're going to sell off your catalog, right? The person who's going to buy, it's going to play, pay fewer sales tax on it, you know? So, Mm -hmm. Are low interest rates, so I mean the tax on it will will be will help mm-hmm. you a little bit. So it's right. It's a chance, and some of this I think too. Um, this is the first thing I, I went to. It's like a lot of these people are older that are doing it. You know, Dylan a lot of people. them. But you'd be surprised how many younger oh, no, 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 are I, doing. It and yeah, I mean it's that's it's the a thing re- that fascinates me. Well, I mean, and that's a, that's where I kind of piqued my interest. At first, it was kind of like okay, 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 and it's like whoa, wait a minute, right? Because um, you go from like okay, you get Dylan. You know, you get Springsteen, you get, you know, Crosby and it's like, okay, I get it. But then you get like Blondie and the Pretenders and you're like, well, these guys aren't exactly. Yeah, but I'm talking about like the the, the main songwriter dude in 21 Pilots. Yeah. Has sold off. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. And Jack Antonoff, who is Jack like Antonoff, the, yeah. one of the hot commodities right now, has sold off some of his stuff. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Some of it, I think, in the case of the older guys, is also estate planning. Absolutely yeah. is. Absolutely. Um, and also not touring is a huge. Oh, sure. Is a course. huge part of this tour. Right. But I think that the, I'm really intrigued by like the young guys that are doing it and why, you know, why has this become a young thing? You know, mm-hmm. um, not working in banking or investment banking or anything. There is a business aspect of this too. That that's kind of fascinating. And um, so that's kind of the first angle I thought about. And then the right. other thing is like, do you feel upset um about it you know like you get very attached to yours like you know when, when the bowie estate announced they were selling off theirs mm-hmm. you know fan the, there was there was not exactly the most positive reaction to that so how do you as a fan react to that i guess that's the first corner we should probably yeah take with this and i guess we could start with with you alan it's like well actually a fan does i was gonna say anthony does work in banking what i do what insights do you have on this whole topic anthony so I'm not a fan of this. I mean, I, I get it from an estate planning perspective. Mm-hmm. I think from a financial vehicle perspective, in terms of generating a revenue stream, what Bowie did in the 90s with securitizing his catalog mm. and looking at it basically as a series of discounted cash flows based on the royalties, to me, that's far more interesting than just selling off mm-hmm. the rights because... Yeah. That's basically selling off the royalties up front for a fixed period of time. Now, he doesn't lose the right, you know, he didn't lose the rights to the songs themselves. They were still 100% his unless the bonds defaulted. Right. They didn't. Right. Now, I think music has devalued since then. Rob, you mentioned streaming, right? So I think Spotify pays what, like, 
two two to five cents, but it's a commodity, you know, that everyone wants when the when the economy goes to hell. People always still want music. So even though right. artists are making a nickel of a recording, there's still a huge demand for it, which is interesting. Yeah, but I I think it's in general worth less than it was 25 years ago yeah. when Bowie securitized his catalog. Yeah, right, um, right. Of course, if you really wanted to make interest on it, you could securitize your catalog and then sell off a ton of futures on it, which uh, I don't think anyone did with Bowie's back catalog, but do all sorts <laughs> of derivatives and weird financial vehicles off of it, um, really screw with the markets, make a shit ton of money. Why not? Um, I mean, I, I get it why the older guys are doing it. To your point, Rob, estate planning makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'm just baffled. Like, um, I saw Shakira sold some of hers yeah. to actually get out of a tax evasion case or to pay for a tax evasion case in mm -hmm. Spain. Right. Um, you know, it, it seems to be like, well, we're in a hole, so um, I need money quick. Let me just sell off my back catalog. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And some of it, too, I think is, you know, you have to wonder how much of it there is the artist just being tired of it. It's like, you know, this is yeah. a lot more business than I want to mess with, you know. But then you, then you hire somebody, you know, you, you find somebody to do it for you. I just, uh, again, Bowie is light years ahead of everybody with this, you know. Um, well, I'm, I'm sure with Bowie and the recent sale, there are probably very, very tight contractual restrictions between yeah. the Bowie estate and, um, and the record label. Yeah. Was mm -hmm. it Warner that bought it? Yeah. Um, but... You know, you look at some of them and you kind of think, well, it's only going to be a matter of time before you get a hundred knockoff best ofs that the record label is putting out just purely to make money. And if Correct. these artists are not careful and structure their contracts uh, for, for the sale in the right way, they're going to mm -hmm. end up with zero integrity across their yeah. catalogs. And some of this too is, you know, they don't release all the information about the sales, but like, Dylan wasn't complete a, a complete sale. It was a partial sale. Some have been full, some have been partial, some have been tiered. A lot of the sort of contract stuff we don't we're not privy to, but some of them, some of these artists do have. I want my 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 music used in this 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 and this as a condition of sale, not used in this 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 and that. There's a lot of the contracts are all different, but it is incredibly fascinating why they're doing it. And the plus, business plus, right. Plus, there's a difference between, um, you know, the song and the recording. And it depends on who owns what and what the artist is actually selling off. Yeah. Um, like in the case of Mick Fleetwood, he is not a songwriter. He has maybe three songwriting credits in the entire history of Fleetwood Mac. He has basically sold off his uh, performing royalties. So the royalties that he gets from having recorded 50 years worth of Fleetwood Mac songs, which is a smaller cut than any of the songwriters get, but he's, he's basically sold that off. And I think that's interesting. And I just found out tonight that there are producers yeah. that have sold off their, their producer royalties. Who knew, who knew that that would be such a thing that people would, you know, be willing to once, buy. Once the artist got it and the, and the, yeah. and the, then the, the back door of the gravy train is open. Yeah, everybody's going to start. Producers, remixers are starting to do it too. Yeah, you know it's it's all gonna it's all gonna blow up. Yeah, I think the the notion of producers and so on selling off their work is it is particularly interesting because yeah. when I think about the value of it, it, 
you know, you have certain, we, we talked about this last week, you have certain producers whose sound is just so unique. You can tell it's by them. Martin Birch was who we talked about specifically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, you've got that very clean rock sound on a Martin Birch record. But for the most part, you, you know, uh, aside from those few superstar producers, you're not really thinking, you know, well, Andy Sneap produced this. Most people would think, who the fuck's Andy Sneap? <laughs> right. right. I know who exactly. Andy Sneap is, but Joe Public doesn't. No, exactly. Um, so, you know, you, you wonder about the value, and that has to be a much more limited market than, yeah. you know, the, the actual artists doing it. Yeah. So when I was the first one that I came across was in an article with kind of a timeline of a lot of these things that have happened over the past year or so. And Jimmy Iovine, who has produced Stevie and lots of other people, um, has sold off his uh, producer royalties. Uh, in addition, Nikki Chin has. And the one that I found most interesting, Bob Ezrin. Talk about an iconic producer and someone who is known for a sound and for a certain particular genre of stuff i mean ezrin is a name and i'm i'm I, I i was just surprised by that yeah i think it's interesting how many different people are doing this now um and people are sort of starting to re-examine why people are selling what they're selling and why mm -hmm. and it's clearly changing the way business is going to be done in the recording industry you're seeing it with taylor swift already right but the, the business of doing music and having contracts is changing. And uh, this is just one of the aspects of it. It's really fascinating. The first one that I ever became aware of, and I'm sure that this is the thing that brought this issue into the public consciousness, was 100,000 years ago when Michael Jackson bought the rights to the Beatles catalog. And Paul McCartney was not able to. And I think that's really, I mean, you know, you never heard anything more about it after that i mean that was kind of a one-time thing and it was a you know kind of a weird thing but so many issues that are going on right now has really brought this to the forefront and like so many artists mostly legacy artists but it's interesting to see some of the younger bands uh that are doing it too and, and particularly the younger songwriters who are producing or writing songs for lots of different artists and they're getting basically uh, an advance on royalties. They're getting this huge dump of cash for whatever future royalties they're going to be making. And it's just interesting. Yeah. And I think on that point, Alan, if you look at it from a purely royalties perspective, mm -hmm. I think if the purchaser is buying the recordings, right. Right, they can then go ahead, repackage, everything and get themselves it may not be guaranteed but you know they can probably find a way to collect those royalties and make their money back mm -hmm. it's a lot less it's a lot less risky than something like the bowie bonds mm -hmm. right which i think right. is why this is headed in in this direction as opposed to finding other methods of securitizing back catalogs yeah and part of this too is that it is much easier now with the with the with the rise in you know we talk about streaming it's also video streaming and video movies and things the demand for soundtracks is is way up for music for for television tv and streaming programs right it is much easier if you own a catalog of an artist to put that across multiple platforms and is to hire somebody to make a score so i think that's part of this too 
Okay, so there's been a lot of big ones that have come across in the past month or so. And there's uh, Springsteen who sold like his entire. So, okay, so when we're talking about the difference between recording and the composition, the the song and it's uh, and the publishing of that song is two different aspects of this thing. And um, Springsteen basically sold off a dual deal to get on both of those ends and, you know, to a tune of $550 million. That is staggering. Now, most of the other ones are publishing deals, whereas his was, you know, like pretty much everything. And he sold it to his record label, basically Sony. So they're going to keep his stuff for, you know, all eternity until they sell it off to somebody else. But the one that I'm, that I'm really super interested in is uh, Nancy Wilson of heart. A, I'm a big heart fan, but, but, B, there's this whole situation with uh, Hart where 2016 Ann and Nancy had a big falling out. They didn't speak to each other for a long time. They went on separate careers. They didn't have any association with Hart. Hart went out on tour in 2019 and it just wasn't the same situation. Like you just didn't feel like there was any connection between them two. And since then, there's been nothing and uh, in a Facebook, I think it was Facebook, maybe it was Twitch live thing that Nancy did this past week. Uh, somebody asked about future heart projects and she says, well, I don't think Anne's interested. I, I think Anne has is, you know, is bored with heart now and it's just on to other things. So what's interesting about this is that the majority of the heart catalog is, I mean, and by majority, I mean, like 95 percent of it is owned by Anne and Nancy. There's some stuff that they recorded that were covers and some stuff that outside songwriters, you know, put in. But for the most part, Ann and Nancy own everything that is hard. And so what this says to me is that they are now basically individual operators. Like they should, there should have been a, a joint, you know, deal. There should have been something that somebody bought like the heart rights if they were going to do this. But Nancy has sold off her half of it, basically. So that tells me that they are, you know, they are separate entities at this point, which kind of hurts my soul. Going back to another band that we've already talked about tonight in our other segment, mm -hmm. um, about five years ago, K.K. Downing sold off his rights. To I was going to bring that up, too. Mm -hmm. And if you think about Priest, the majority of their classic output was written by tipton halford mm. and downing yeah but specifically with him i think he sold off his royalties yeah rather than anything else because he couldn't really sell off the the back catalog or anything like that because he's not the sole owner right exactly so in it's probably the publishing half of it and generally speaking um in these you know modern times since the 70s or whatever the songwriter sets up their own publishing It'll be managed through one of the companies like BMG or whatever, but they basically own their own publishing. So half of the royalties for any any sale, which half of it goes to the record company who owns the masters of the song or the recording, I should say. And the other half goes to the songwriter and the publisher. If the songwriter sets up their own publishing, then they own that whole thing, basically. Right. Um, so in addition to Nancy, the other situation that I'm finding really interesting is Fleetwood Mac, because not only has Mick Fleetwood sold off his uh, performing royalties, Christine has, has sold off her 
uh, rights to her stuff. Lindsay has Lindsay to Lindsay and Christine were to the same company. They were to hypnosis. Stevie sold off her rights. And I don't know how much of this, of any of these three people, it includes just Fleetwood Mac stuff or Fleetwood Mac and solo album stuff. But with Stevie Nicks selling her stuff off to, and I don't remember what company it was that bought her, um, Primary Wave, that's it. Um, Hypnosis is now talking about how they own two thirds of all the songs off of Fleetwood Mac's biggest albums, you know, like uh, the, the White Fleetwood Mac album from 75 and Rumors and Tango in the Night and all the ones that have the big massive hits. Hypnosis owns two thirds of that stuff now which is fascinating to me. So the difference in those two situations to me is that Fleetwood Mac has always been sort of like more solo artists. After their the first two albums with Lindsay and Stevie, they all became solo artists who then came back to do band projects. So they've always sort of operated on their own terms. With Ann and Nancy, this whole thing of selling off, one, one person selling off their rights and the other one not, is that, that's a big thing to me. That's huge. And it makes me sad. And I also think, too, that it's one of those instances where it is literally artist by artist. And I think yeah, that yeah. I think sometimes you will see it turn into this battle of the wills between factions of bands. But I think sometimes it is a unified front. And the money, I think, for the artists is clearly in the publishing more than the royalties. There's no radio anymore. You know, right. it's it's getting it in a TV, getting it in a property and the li- and the licensing. So mm-hmm. if you're somebody like Fleetwood Mac, where you can break it all down, it's a headache for, you know, fans trying to keep track of it. But at the same time, it almost makes sense for them all to go separate and do it as much as it sucks from a, from a business standpoint, it makes sense. Right. Yeah. Right. The other situation that I, that I was reading about tonight that I find really interesting is primary wave has also like basically um, bought stakes in the Prince estate. They essentially bought out three stakeholders, two siblings, two of Prince's siblings, and a third person who owned some, you know, stocks or whatever it is that they're doing. Permanent Wave, no, that's a Rush album. Um, Primary Wave has basically bought out those three people and now essentially own 42% of the Prince catalog, of the Prince vault. That's crazy. That's the, that, I don't know exactly what the details are on that, if it's just royalties or what. I don't think they have any controlling element as far as like the, the actual songwriting or anything like that goes. I think the I thing know. with Prince though is, I mean, even when he passed, it was a glaring oh my God, thing in the yeah. estate that there's nobody, there's no transfer of power, so to speak. Right. So I think in, in that instance, you know, he's got two siblings that have absolutely no desire to be messing with this. They just want to get paid and have their money. And I just say, I mean, and in that instance, it kind of makes sense, but it just astounds me still that like Prince died without sort of any sort of plan with this. What a mess that man left with his stuff. I mean, that, that there was nothing to say who owned it or what would be done with it or anything. And then the vultures just swooped in crazy. And you wonder how many other artists are in similar positions, you know, if they were to disappear overnight. And I think there is there is a certain amount of artists looking at this going, yeah, you know, Springsteen's got, you know, as part of his divorce that he had, you know, 
his ex-wife gets part of his future sales. So fine. You, you sweep that out of the right. Here's your money. See you later. Bye. Done. Family's washed with it. So I think it's an interesting way to avoid family issues, obviously estate planning, but it's also sort of a way to circumvent, circum, circumvent a lot of just really awkward business stuff. And yeah. I think that, you know, and sometimes I think it's a panic and they do it. And sometimes I think it's really well planned out, but it is sort of this whole interesting culture now uh, that's affecting music is how artists are approaching their catalog, their royalties and sort of the environment that it's in too. And, and particularly if you look at Springsteen, half a billion dollars, that man oh doesn't God. need to work again. No. He's t if he tours, it's because he enjoys it. If he puts out music, it's because he enjoys it. He does mm -hmm. not need the money anymore. No, no, I mean, and the Broadway money is all separate anyway, so you can just live off the Broadway money, <laughs> off the gigs on Broadway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Crazy. Um, some of the artists that I've heard about over the past few months have been, and I think Dylan was one of these two, where it's everything that exists, but then everything that happens after this point. So if Dylan writes more songs, they will they will become part of that acquisition that whoever it was that bought his stuff up. Um, and, and I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And I wonder how much that actually factored into the price, because if mm. Dylan doesn't put another damn thing out, that's meaningless. If he puts exactly. out another 20 albums, unlikely, right. but you never know. Right. You know, that's potentially a lot of, of income for the label that bought the rights. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is that Dylan is touring like a madman yes. like, right now. So mm -hmm. he's got to be getting other live money. He's got to be getting that or something because his tour schedule is just obscene. It's like he's going to tour until he drops dead at this point, which is what it looks like. Right. And people that I've, this is a side note, people that I've heard that have seen it, like Alan Light on uh, the Sirius XM talk channel volume, says that his his current show is just amazing. So, I mean, he's he's doing, he's still doing the work. And Springsteen doesn't. What's that? He's 80. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so how well, I mean, many yeah. tours and how many new albums does he have in him? Well, I mean, Springsteen's doing it. Uh, yeah. Until he got sick, Neil Diamond was touring. There's a lot of people that are touring into their 70s and 80s, and they're still oh, sure. cashing in. Yeah. The Rolling Stones will not stop. Mm -mm. They will not cease. They will be in wheelchairs, and they will still come up on Wembley Stadium, and they will still sell out the damn stadium. And, you know, that's that's not going to change. They will I mean, drop dead on stage. Charlie Watts literally did drop dead, and the rest of the band kept going. <laughs> That's right. There is no stopping them. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, overall, it, it's very interesting. Um, I am particularly interested in the two companies that you mentioned, Alan. Mm. Um, Hypnosis, and now you've got me wanting to call them Permanent Waves. Um, what were they actually called? Hang on, hang on, hang on. It is Primary Wave. Primary Wave. I think that... <sighs> From an investor perspective, I actually looked at buying stock in Hypnosis. And, I remember you mentioning that. Yeah, and you they, they don't sell to U.S. investors. Um, but I think that those funds could be extremely lucrative on a go forward mm. basis. And now I've said that, I have to say, I'm not a registered investment advisor. Please do not take that <laughs> as genuine inf investment advice. Right. That's just a personal opinion. Do not take this as investment advice, please. 
it is interesting to see what companies are doing what. So the, the two that were sort of leading this charge was primary wave and hypnosis. Mm -hmm. And they have they have done a lot of deals with a lot of big names. And then in addition to them, there was another company that came up called Round Hill Music. And they started buying up stuff, too. And they got Nancy's stuff and uh, David Coverdale of Whitesnake. And they bought up like stuff from the 60s and things like this. And so it's interesting that now uh, there's a company called K. I think it's KKG that is basically a Wall Street investment firm that is now starting to buy into the music field. And so it's really going to be interesting to see once all these um, investment companies basically carve up the music industry, what's going to happen. It's going to be interesting to see how this changes the, yeah. the business from this point on. And it's, yeah. it's, it's not just them, Alan. There are other investment management Oh, there's firms. a lot of them. You know, yeah. I think Calvin Harris sold his to a company called Vine Alternative Investments. Taylor Swift, after Scooter Braun, oh, Bought, yeah. hit, bought her catalog he then sold it on to shamrock capital yes and the killers sold out to an investment management firm as well i mean overall yeah. i think this is being seen more and more as an alternate investment by mm -hmm. firms that would traditionally deal in the stock markets or bonds or derivatives mm -hmm. when you look at alternate investments they're, they're ones that tended to focus more on crypto or uh yeah. synthetic derivatives and all that kind of thing yeah and yeah. they're now turning to to the new fad basically because i agree with you i agree with you i think it's really interesting to see all these different companies who are kind of jumping on a bandwagon and seeing what hasn't been bought and what they can get well the and other thing oh go ahead that's what they do i mean they're always yeah. looking for new investment vehicles that might be lucrative right and they will put a little bit of money into this they've probably bought some nfts they're probably invested in art and wine as well. I mean, literally anything mm -hmm. that has um, future cash flows tied to it, basically. Yeah, you know, the the art market is kind of the, the model for this. It's like people buying art. That's kind yeah. of the, the, the blueprint for this. But the other thing, too, is that the market around the world has opened up more than it has been in 20 years. And streaming is one of the reasons. But there's markets believe it or not, where like the entire Springsteen catalog was not available to them, right? Especially if they were doing TV or radio or just wanted to play it. So it's a worthwhile investment for them because not only are they you know, having an investment in the future, they're getting into whole new markets now that they've never been able to get to. Um, it, despite you know everything going on, the Asian market is just opening up like crazy for Western artists right now. Uh, in a way that it hasn't in 10 or 15 years. So I think that does piggyback into the mindset of a lot of people that do the investment stuff in it. I think that's, it's more and more um, a really lucrative thing for someone to invest in than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And the instantaneous nature of the world now has made it even just like so much simpler and quicker to do it all. So the floodgates are open. Um. There's sort of a related story that I'm thinking of that kind of goes along with what you're talking about. And it was the band Animotion. And they start, I know, who would ever think that Animotion would come up in this? They started out in, I think it was 85, did a couple of albums, and then they split. And then they got back together with two different, they had a, a, a girl and a, and a guy lead singer. They got together with two new singers. 
and they did some dumb cheesy songs or whatever and there was one that was called room to move i think it was and i'm thinking um the guy's name is uh paul ingaman i think it is and he wrote um that song room to move and then he wrote a song that was used in the olympics and then he wrote a song that was used in the movie scarface or whatever and so he's not i don't think he's really involved in music anymore he's involved he's a businessman and he does these lectures where he talks about um creating things that are perpetual earners and he talks about his songwriting credits on these songs that were, you know, moderate hits continue to bring him money. And he's done this, he's, these projects one time and those things sit out there and they continue to earn him money. So his whole thing to in, you know, like prospective business people is find ways to make your money work for you, create something that will always work for you that you don't have to work. And I think that's fascinating that you know not somebody who's a dylan or a springsteen or a stevie or whatever who had a, a very limited number of hits and a very limited amount of musical success has that he has that model and he brought it into the business world so how does that stack up with all these other people who are basically selling off these things uh, that are continuous earners for them it's, it's kind of like the exact reverse of what he's been telling business people. It It is, but I think we come back to the point of he's having to continually work and rely okay. on these cash flows continuing. True. Right? If he sold, he would get a sum up front. Yeah. Right. Right? So that's that's fundamentally you yeah, know, what's happening here. You're paying exactly. for the repetition, but that hook in obsession is it going to be in like every commercial at least oh no commercial. that was not him that was, that not, was him. not him no so no no be, he okay. was the guy who came in after they did two albums okay. and had other hits he came in on the third album which was a few years later and had one dumb song yeah and, my animation chops are, are nowhere <laughs> i've never even heard of them before tonight so well that's okay they'll be in the rock and roll hall <laughs> of fame next sit. year <laughs> And we'll oh, still be waiting Anthony. for Kate fucking Bush. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to send you a link, Anthony, and you'll be like, oh, I think I know that song. <laughs> for, yeah, I should say I'm sorry. Pop, yeah. yeah. I, think that's a, I think that's one of the, you know, sort of the side projects of this, if you will, is that it, it's going to open up this in interesting ways now, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also, you know, one of the things that's, that's happening with these deals is like, okay, it's recorded music. What's the definition of recorded music? Is that what happens with live live stuff and demos? Where does that fall in? Remix. Right, exactly. So I think it's all going to get down to semantics and things, which is really going to be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And if I was if I was one of these uh, companies, and I could get the rights to some obscure demos and offcuts from name it Fleetwood Mac, Pink Floyd, whomever, I would. Mm -hmm jump at that because you could then put that out and yeah you know wh whomever gets hold of tony iomi from black sabbath's archive oh my god they're going to be milking that for decades because <laughs> he has everything i mean he has kept everything over the course yeah. of his yeah. career good i mean there's still sinatra stuff in the vaults that once they figure out who owns it they can sell all this off you know <laughs> um i mean just the amount of we always think of new music, but the amount of old artists that have stuff in vaults, you know, yeah. what happens with the Beatles deal if they suddenly release the Beatles and Elvis sessions, you know, mm. um, 
It's a lot of inter interesting story storylines well, where this could and, go. Right. And the other thing, talking about Prince earlier, you know, all the stuff that's in his vault, you know, if 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 they've sold off like songwriting credits or whatever, then whoever bought it owns all that stuff that's in the vault. So it kind of depends. But there's also the factor of uh, he had a subsidiary record label with Warner Brothers called Paisley Park Records for, you know, 10-ish years. And, um, you know, so there's all those masters as well, which I'm sure are still owned by Warner Brothers. Um, but he wrote the, well, not all of it, but he wrote a lot of that stuff. You know, the only the only artists on Paisley Park that were big sellers were Prince and Sheila E. But, you know, if you're talking about Prince's songwriting royalties, if that's what someone's bought, then he wrote, you know, tons of songs for other artists. Manic Monday for mm -hmm. the Bengals, you know. So it's, it's really interesting to see, you know, how the Prince estate particularly is going to get carved up by these different uh, investing bodies. No, the other thing, too, that's interesting is that, you know, people now are going into studios and recording records and thinking before they've made the album, how they're going to sell the royalties in the catalog. Oh, you have to. I know, but it's just, it's, you know, we're, I, I'm of a generation, at least that, you know, the artist goes in, makes the songs, artist makes the songs, goes to a label, gets it out there and does it. And now it's. And then they get ripped off by their managers and by the record company because they didn't doing know it. what they were doing when they went or in. Or they don't have a marketing company that can handle it for them or an agent <laughs> or whatever. But it's just the whole process of uh, this. Is, the point being is that this is bled into the actual process of making music, yeah. which I think is also culturally interesting um, because it's, it's giving an artist a high degree of freedom they did not normally have in the last, you know, six or seven decades of music. Uh, people control their own fate now more than they did 10 or 12 years ago, which is, which is incredible. But I would also question how many of, I mean, I'm sure there are some artists who are very astute as to the, the legal and financial repercussions, but there for everyone who knows exactly what they're doing, there's got to be, you know, a couple who have no idea what they're selling off and are talked mm. into it and are going to come and, and regret it in a few years time. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what I yeah. think too. Yeah, you know, because okay, so here's here's an example. Um, this what was it? A year ago, year and a half ago, or whatever. This guy on a skateboard with a bottle of cranberry juice does a TikTok thing to "Dreams" by Fleetwood Mac, and all of a sudden, Stevie Nicks is everywhere, and that song blows up, and her profile raises. So, what happens when another thing like that? comes along you know i mean not that you can plan those things but something's going to happen you know like uh, a, a new documentary will come out about one of these you know bands and all of a sudden their stuff's going to blow up yeah. you know i mean well, it will yeah. happen when the artist dies but i'm talking about while they're still alive things can happen that are going to change their profile and they're going to become big business again quick someone go and buy king crimson's back catalog there's a documentary <laughs> about them coming out in a there in you a month go or so <laughs> Or the polystyrene stuff. Buy up all the polystyrene stock. <laughs> I bid ten bucks for the back catalog of Wasp. <laughs> I'll see your. I'll give you twenty five for Gore. <laughs> oh my gosh! Wow. <laughs> so if we pull all of our money, the Modern Musicology podcast could invest in some artist. Maybe not a big name, but we could do somebody. We'll have to. We'll have give to us a call. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're willing to sell off your stuff to modern musicology. 
we have probably 200 bucks between us. That's yeah. about right. Yeah. Yeah. We could we could buy a song maybe. We buy convoy. Convoy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Anthony doesn't even know what that or, is. Or Disco uh, Duck. We could buy Disco Duck. Disco, disco Duck. <laughs> that sounds made up for us. Or the or the Nico, it isn't though. No. That's the thing. Or the Nico Star Wars. We'll buy the Nico Star. Oh Wars. my gosh! I've got so many links. I've got to send you tonight, Anthony. <laughs> I'm looking oh. forward to them. <laughs> All right. So that's our that's our wrap up of the current crazy situation in the world of music and selling off all your stuff. Um, and, you know, if things develop, we will be back and talk about it a little bit more. But for now, uh, Anthony, where can folks find you on the internet? As always, I can be found on the Watches in the Fourth Dimension podcast, where we are watching our way through the entirety of Doctor Who from 1963 until now. Um, we have recently released our episode on the mutants. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at Watches4D. Uh, and in terms of actually finding the podcasts, all the usual places, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, etc., etc., wherever you like to find yours. So yeah, check us out. Rob. You can find me at uh, needcoffee.com with lots of different stuff, uh, their podcast, the website, stuff like that, and on KDHX with uh, my show each week. Sweet. I have another podcast that I do all about Star Trek. It's called Earth Station Trek. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and probably Instagram. I don't know. I, I'm sure we're there. I have no idea. And you can find the podcast on Spotify and all these those other places that Anthony kindly mentioned already. All right, so we will be back uh, next week with another show talking about can you ever divorce the art from the artist? That's going to be an interesting one. So hope you'll join us then and hope you take a look back at our archives and see some of our previous shows and find us on our YouTube channel, Modern Musicology. We'll see you again next time. Take care and have a great week. <laughs>